This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Hansen. Thurley Ruxton by Philip Virrell Miguels. Chapter 45 A Drove of Lions. The elements essential to a logical climax of the innocent royal diversion that Alice Van Kirk had permitted, with Thurley as the central figure, were swiftly gathering when on Friday afternoon two widely opposed individuals made their appearance at the Fifth Avenue mansion. One of the visitors was Robley Stiverant, the other was Pelevin. Each had purposely chosen a moment of Thurley's absence from the palace, the better to further his ends. Pelvin came in the guise of a servant seeking employment as footman. He made his application in the region below stairs, where such an incident, though decidedly unusual, excited no particular interest, and certainly no disquietude. His desires were immediately communicated to the mistress of the house, who promptly, but in a spirit of kindness, replied that her retinue afforded no vacancies, wherefore she regretted her inability to accommodate another servant. Pelevin, as a matter of fact, had expected some such reply. During the few close-packed minutes of his stay, however, he had managed to acquire a number of important facts concerning the plan of the house, the number of its servants, their duties, and a little of the ways of life of those who resided above. When he presently departed, he was singularly undepressed, for one who desires for employment had met with so little encouragement. Even the servants to whom he had spoken were a trifle suspicious of his manner, but his visit was soon forgotten. Stiverant, bent on a mission as vital to himself as that which brought Pelevin, seemed to Alice a trifle constrained when he entered the room where she was sitting. It was her own retreat, the room in which she had always received him before, an apartment where the very atmosphere was charged with discussions of thoroughly. It was destined to be charged anew to-day. "'Well, Robley,' said Alice, once more restored to her lighter, more jovial mood, "'you appear as chipper and gay as a clam. <laughs> Has someone died and left you another fortune?' Stiverant attempted to smile, but its failure verged on the tragic. "'I'm all right,' he asserted, but without convincing emphasis. "'I just dropped in to ask if by any chance you and Miss Thurley—' may have received a letter addressed to me, intended for me, uh, would be more accurate, and perhaps directed wrongly by mistake. Why, yes, said Alice, Thurley brought me some epistle this morning, and we sent it at once to your address, at least it was posted by noon. Why, was it anything unduly important? I must ask you what comprised its text? Oh, it was just a sort of business announcement, I should say. Something about some bonds, a special concession from the Paris uh, Boers. Uh, if I remember correctly, it merely directed your attention to the fact that investments were now made possible in some sort of uh, continental bonds. 
"'Did it come from the office of Acton Gaylord?' "'His gravity impressed her inescapably. "'Why, yes, we rather wondered, of course. "'I felt convinced that some blunder of mixing envelopes. "'Perhaps you received some other note or letter addressed to Thurley?' "'I did,' said Styvern, his face peculiarly drawn. "'I have brought it with me, thinking it might be of value.' He drew an envelope from his pocket, removed a folded sheet of writing-paper, and placed it in Alice's hand. She took it with a sense of ominous impending. It was the briefest bit of scrawl. Dear Thurley, just a formal receipt acknowledging the loan of your thirty thousand dollars. You must let me come Friday night, as per my earlier request, with love, Acton. Alice read it at a glance, and the color mounted swiftly to her face. A more provoking accident she could scarcely imagine occurring at this particular time. She looked up presently and met a somewhat stern and chilling gaze from Robley's blue-gray eyes. There seemed to be nothing adequate to say and nothing to do. She tried to smile. "'Well?' "'It's true,' he said. "'She has made him this loan?' Alice arched her brows. "'My dear Robley, isn't that rather a matter of her concern alone?' He rose and rammed his hands in his pockets. "'Obviously you realize, of course, Alice, that I made this discovery through no fault or prying of my own.' "'Is it necessary to state that, Robley?' His manner altered instantly. "'Oh!' I, I'm, I'm hardly responsible for what I may say or do. This thing has jarred me, that's all. She looked out at the window. Well, it jarred me. You knew about it before? She told me she had lent him the money. What do you make of it, if I may ask? I made a wry face over it, said Alice, but what is the use? Then it doesn't make you happy? Very few of the world's occurrences seem designed for my particular joy. He crossed to another window and stood there, staring out at the park. I admit I've been a fool enough to dream dreams, he confessed, after a moment of silence. I could, I believe, have accepted philosophically anything that the needs of a nation at the hands of this young Grand Duke anything that political necessity hadn't you seen any signs of this relationship with gaylord oh perhaps but i thought she did not finish but shrugged her shoulders instead had he met her before oh so i hear you weren't consulted first about this loan alice smiled as before without mirth or special meaning my dear robley we must neither of us forget that Thurley is of age and the mistress of her own affairs. Oh, but this Gaylord, he exclaimed impatiently. I suppose he's coming here tonight. I believe he is. He turned and looked at her squarely, his fine face re-chiseled in its lines. I couldn't have believed it, Alice, if I hadn't had this accidental notice. "'Accidental?' she echoed. "'You don't really think Mr. Gaylord uh, 
The mixing of envelopes doesn't often occur in businessman's office without express intent, he answered incisively. Still, I may, of course, be mistaken. He couldn't be such a cad, said Alice, although I might have expected... Oh, Robley, let's not attempt to judge, to settle, to do anything about this unfortunate matter here this afternoon. Come and see thoroughly for yourself. Tonight? Good heavens, no. I don't know how we're going to manage. Come tomorrow or Sunday. Come when you're calmer, anyway. It's so easy to make mistakes. Alice, you really wish to encourage me to hope? To hope for what? You know how I feel toward your protégé, but I don't know how she feels toward you, and if I did, my dear boy, I've about made up my mind that the fates will have their way, no matter who it pinches, that's all. Now do say good-bye and go. He had barely gone when one of the servants brought her a letter delivered, he said, by special messenger awaiting to take reply. The letter was directed to Alice. It came from Baron von Hotchhaus on affairs of the young Grand Duke. Alice read it with amusement of a kind. It was not, however, a humorous epistle. It was practically a warning that the ardent and somewhat unmanageable young Karl Wilhelm, Grand Duke of Saxe-Herzenheimer, desired to honor himself by calling that evening unless his visit should be inconvenient or untimely. In the midst of the letter's perusal, thoroughly returned, fresh from a gallop in the park with her groom and a special guardian on whose attendance Alice had insisted, Alice called her at once to hear the note, particularly the postscript, which read as follows. I am practically powerless to avert this adventure on the part of His Excellency Karl Wilhelm, and I therefore take this means and occasion to state that Princess Servinia, recently discovered and found to be quite ill, is by the grace of God so miraculously improved that her immediate return to Europe is contemplated. You will readily understand, I am certain, and perhaps even pardon me, if I refer to a former conversation with yourself, in which I suggested the service possible to Herzegosse in a complete discouragement of the Grand Duke by one of the noblest young women it has ever been my pleasure to encounter. May I beg a little further indulgence in behalf of my worried and disordered country. Thoroughly already acquainted with the outcome of the Baron's former visit, during the time of her own despair and anguish, was now amazed to learn of, of the finding of the actual princess. She was perhaps also a little startled concerning possible results. She entirely overlooked the point that appealed to Alice. Does it mean that we, uh, that discovery, uh, does it mean very much to us? She inquired gravely, looking at Alice and her girlish, wistful way. You can take it as part of the joke? Oh, it isn't that, my dear, said Alice, lightly enough. I was thinking how utterly absurd it is for Acton Gaylord, the Count, and now the Duke, to insist as I have on coming here all in one evening. 
altogether, or one blend the other, perhaps, for I hardly suppose you'd enter the cage with all your three lions in a drove. Oh, he does want to come to-night, of course, said Thoroughly, still distinctly serious. I had completely forgotten. But Count Faiji's to come by eight and be gone in fifteen minutes. Mr. Gaylord arrives at half-past eight, and— her eyes flashed fun and warmth. Why not let the Duke be last at nine o'clock? I think I'd like it. Three within the hour. I thought so, or thought perhaps it might be entertaining, answered Alice, aware of the general reception plan for the Count, but puzzled still by Thurley's attitude with Gaylord. Shall I answer nine tonight? You may as well, said Thurley. I've heard there's a charm in threes. How easy it was to remember the things that Robley had declared. How eagerly, gladly, and naturally her thoughts went forth to find him day and night. How she treasured the flowers that came from his hand among the houseful constantly arriving. And how often she wished she could tell him things share with him all the long day's happenings in the way that comrades should. Charms and threes, repeated Alice. I should hope there might be some few charms distributed among this oddly assorted trio, but I greatly rejoice that the counts have all been discovered. The count, as a matter of fact, had been more than discovered recently. He had been a bit exposed, likewise a bit defeated, and was blissfully unaware either pertinent occurrence. Not only had Gaylord rounded on him brilliantly, recouping lost ground with a second burst of skill inspired by Thurley's unexpected help and attitude, but the all-important intelligence imported by Lady Honor Calthrop at this tea was of such a nature that Alice was radiant with joy. The hour had come to met out punishments for things endured under the laws of the social world, and Alice was a woman. Thurley had drifted far away on a thought of the young Duke Carl. Some of his ways are very charming, she said. I felt that you thought so, too. Alice, who had spoken to the Count, betrayed new surprise. She felt she should never in the least know Thurley after all. Why, yes, she agreed, but there are charms and charms, and fortunately no man has them all. Poor little Zora Norton married a very charming creature three years ago. The last time I saw her she looked at me like a, a Dresden China shepherdess, and sweetly lisped, "'Doesn't a woman have to love her husband an awful lot not to hate him utterly?' <laughs> "'I've thought it often since.' But, said Thurley, aren't you glad you're married? Alice smiled. My dear, I like the changes of climate. I'm hardy enough to endure them, and they make me hardier for more. Now I think you better rest a while for your three in tandem tonight. Thurley felt a great excitement instantly assert itself. So much did the meetings presage. I'll rest if I can, she answered, and went to the care of her maids. End of chapter 45